Howdy friends, this is Matt Sewell and you're listening to episode 84 of the Popecast, the only podcast about popes where you'll find non-boring stories on the successors of St. Peter and a reminder that all of the world's problems have happened plenty of times before. Our sponsors this week are our friends over at Catholic Balm Co. Once again, you're cutting it a little close for Christmas time, so call it maybe a New Year's resolution to try some new smells or maybe blame the supply chain and get some belated Christmas gifts if you're still behind the curve. Either way, head on over to catholicbalm.co to check out all their great stuff from beard balms, lotion bars, deodorant, lip balm, and more. And when you do, be sure to enter the word POPE, P-O-P-E, at checkout for 10% off your entire order. So once more, that's catholicbalm.co and the word POPE at checkout. Thanks again to Catholic Balm Co., as always, for sponsoring the podcast. So today's episode is a break from the norm, but should still be a great installment on our usual journey through papal history. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Breidenbach, who is an associate professor and Chair of History at Ave Maria University and Senior Affiliate for Legal Humanities at the Program for Research on Religion and Urban Civil Society at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the author of Our Dear Bought Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America, released this year in May from Harvard University Press, and A History of Religious Liberty and Church-State Relations in Early America and the Atlantic World. He is also co-editor of the Cambridge Companion to the First Amendment and Religious Liberty from Cambridge University Press, in 2020. Michael earned his PhD in history from King's College, Cambridge, where he was a Cambridge Overseas Trust Scholar. He lives in Southwest Florida now with his wife and their son. I truly cannot say enough good things about what I've read so far of his book and of the interview you're about to dive into. Uh, A quick scan through the positive reviews for this book on Amazon from the likes of George Weigel, Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York, and several others show just what a contribution this is, not only to historical scholarship, but also to understanding More of the context around the great story of America's founding, and specifically the parts that ordinary Catholics and the institutional Catholic Church played in it, uh, and in the realm of religious liberty as we know it today. So we uh, really hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here's our interview with Dr. Michael Breidenbach. Dr. Michael Breidenbach, thanks for joining the podcast. It's great to be here, Matt. Thank you. Yeah. So you have a new book out, as I, I mentioned in the the intro, um, Our Dear Bot Liberty, which is out from Harvard University Press. And how, how long has it been out for? Three, Since four months May. at this point? Since May. Um, great. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it the reputation precedes it and you by extension, obviously. Um, if you go on the Amazon page for it, especially, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a who's who of the reviews for the book. So it's, it's been, um, very widely acclaimed, but, uh, so we're really grateful that you, you, you decided to come on. So the first question I had for you is how did you first become interested in this particular area of, of history? So particularly the history of religious liberty, um, and politics in America. Well, like a lot of cradle Catholics in America, I sat in the pews on Sunday and, uh, looked at, uh, those two flags that flank, uh, a lot of altars in America, right? The Holy See flag and the American flag. And that was the sort of um, picture that I had of my American and my Amer- uh, Catholic identities, that um, these went perfectly compatible with one another and, um, and that, you know, effectively during the John Paul II and Benedict XVI papacies, uh, there was a kind of um, a, a quiet confidence, I think, uh, among American Catholics, uh, at least many of them, um, that that these two identities uh, worked out quite well. There might be some laws, um, ma- major laws or Supreme Court interpretations that made these um, these two identities uh, problematic. Um, but for the most part, um, you know, it was sort of relative peace and tranquility. Um, and then we had some turbulent years. Um, in you know maybe in the past ten years, uh, in which politics and religion have really upended, and um, it was around that time that I began to start uh, this this project, and I wanted to know the the ways in which um, these identities uh, were compatible, and perhaps the ways in which uh, there had been some tensions, at least historically, um, that might say something about our present moment, and so that's where I uh, began that research. I had. Um, uh, realized that um, 
these are two topics that one should never talk about at the dinner table, religion and politics. And so I um, uh, went uh, to, uh, to research them instead and then ended up talking about them at dinner anyway. And so um, this has been a lifelong uh, interest of mine. And uh, what I uncovered in, in my research was quite surprising. And I hope we can, we can talk about that. Um, but, uh, but effectively, it came out of uh, a personal right, um, uh, inquiry into um, American and Catholic identities. Yeah, I think that's, that's brilliant. I mean, it's the best place for something like that to come from because um, I feel like when, you know, when we read a, a book that was clearly just written for academic acclaim or popular acclaim or something, you can tell. It's like how kids are the best BS detectors when, when like their parents are trying to <laughs> pull the wool over their eyes for whatever it might be. But yeah, that's great. And that is interesting because until Pope Francis came on the scene, I, I would agree. I, I mean, you just assumed... John Paul loved America because it was a stalwart against communism when he was fighting against it in Poland, right? And Pope Francis, you know, it's not good or bad. He just comes from a completely different milieu that it's like how startling was it for a lot of probably bishops going to visit him and, you know, Americans to think, wait, the way that we do it isn't the only and the right way in, in all of the world, all that type of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think right, that's really interesting. Right. And I would add, Matt, that um – to say that uh, research um, comes from a place of some kind of personal interest can be dangerous because then the charge is that this is this is some kind of prejudiced uh, um, research, and um, I'll just say that that I was quite surprised at the the conclusion that I that I drew, and so um, obviously historians uh, always have a, a kind of interest that um, that is personal. A lot of times it is autobiographical. Um, but but for me it was it was uh, studying from England where I took my PhD. Uh, it provided me a, a kind of um, outsider perspective, if you will, um, that uh, gave me a, a kind of distance from the subject matter, um, the kind of distance necessary, I think, for historical inquiry. Um, and so this is definitely not um, the kind of work that I thought I would produce. Um, and so we can get into that a little bit more. Uh, and I would just echo um, what you said about um, uh, John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI. I think there was there was um, um, a kind of um, a, you know kind of compatibility that uh, that they um, gave us that um, I, I in many ways um, has been challenged. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. Well, that's a good segue into the, the next question I had for you. So, um, just talking a little bit about your new book. So again, it's, it's called our dear bought Liberty. The, the subtitle of it is uh, Catholics and religious toleration in early America. So for anybody out there, please go check it out. Um, I regret to say, professor, I didn't read all of the reading. I, I did read a, a significant portion and what I did, I mean, it's, yeah, it's outstanding. So just talk about like what, what's the thesis of the book? What, if you want the conclusion that you came to, um, who are the key players and then what do you hope readers will take away from it? So whether they're, professional historians like yourself or amateur armchair historians like me and um, fellow history nerds like the people who listen to the Popecast. So yeah, I, just kind of those, those three. So just kind of dive into um, what the book's all about. The book is how Catholics became American. And there are a lot of different ways that historians before have answered this kind of question. The way I answer it, and I think this is uh, a main reason why Catholics became American, is because they declared independence from the Pope. And they did so in, in a very uh, specific way. They denied papal infallibility, um, which means in particular that they didn't deny that the Pope was infallible with other bishops in councils, but they denied that he could be infallible, uh, as it were, by himself. And then the second denial is that uh, the Pope did not have the power to intervene in temporal affairs of other countries, even for the sake of spiritual ends. And so these are the, the kind of double denials that, that um, allowed them to be considered safe for the American Republic, or England for that matter. Um, it could go for, for any country that um, has a, um, uh, an issue with the, the Pope's authority in their country. Right, that may not be the case for for certain maybe Catholic countries. Although, <clears throat> in the case of um, France and Spain, there was a strong tradition, um, depending on the time period, of trying to create some distance from papal authority as well. Um, and so, the, 
basically the thesis of the book is that um, these Catholics spanning from the very founding of Maryland to the American founding, and then I trace the history um, to effectively the 20th century in the conclusion, is that uh, there's been a long-standing, what I call anti-papalist view among uh, American Catholics uh, that allowed them to um, answer um, the, the challenge that Protestants had traditionally charged with um, Catholics with, which is that they're um, allegiant to a higher foreign power and therefore dangerous. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, well, and, I, and I guess maybe one of those things was rebuked, but the other of those was borne out to be actually probably correct and just it was just a matter of time before it was going to be corrected, right? Yeah, the, the, in terms of papal infallibility, um, there had been a lot of confusion around uh, what later became a, a declared um, dogma, um, of course, by an ecumenical council, uh, the First Vatican Council. And so, um, you know, in, in my research, I found cardinals um, discussing among other ecclesiastics, um, maybe this oath, um, uh, uh, this particular um, question about oath of allegiance, maybe what the Pope said is ex cathedra, maybe it isn't. And so there, there's a kind of question about what that even means um, in the 18th century, in the document that I'm citing. Um, and so certainly by the 19th century, there's a, a, a fairly clear definition. Uh, but before that, um, there was a lot of speculation, theological speculation, a lot of denials, right, coming from um, the Gallican Church in France and others, um, and certainly among uh, these American Catholics. And then, of course, in the case of the um, uh, papal authority in te temporal affairs or in temporalibus, um, there is um, a, a wide range of interpretations of what that even means, right? Does it mean, in the extreme case, deposing princes? Um, does it mean simply uh, kind of advice-giving or counsel that should be taken in due course as a Catholic ruler? Um, and, and so on. So uh, th there's a lot of ambiguity, I think, um, in, in this history. Um, but what is not ambiguous is that these were the two tests, you might say, maybe even religious tests, uh, for what um, the grounds for citizenship, I would even go so far as to say that, um, uh, among uh, the kind of uh, religious and political and legal culture in early America. You had to deny these things uh, to be a safe Catholic. Yeah, that's super fascinating. So uh, yeah, I want to come back to the temporal authority piece, but First, yeah, so who are the key players? I know you framed this book around the uh, two prominent families. One, obviously, I had heard of. The other, I admit, I, I had never heard of the Calverts before. I was like, is that the, that's not, it's like for a split second, I think, no, that's not Calvin, that's somebody different. Um, but the Calverts, I had never heard of them. Um, and I don't know how many, I don't know if I've just been living under a rock or I'd never heard, but like everybody knows Charles Carroll, the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence. That's right. I didn't even know that there was two Charles Carrolls, though. Um, so maybe you could just talk about kind of the key players who you frame this around. Sure. So that's right. The Calverts and the Carrolls um, are the are the two major families, uh, but there are hundreds of Catholics in the book um, that uh, play supporting roles, as it were, for this. Um, so it um, this is certainly not uh, um, sort of biographies of two families, um, but they do play a prominent role um, simply because they were um, the um, the most important Catholics in early America. Um, the Calverts, uh, you, you've, you've heard of um, Baltimore, Maryland, because um, the Calverts are the Lord's Baltimore, and they're the founders of, of Maryland uh, as a colony. Um, so that's George Calvert and Cecil Calvert. And George Calvert was um, a cradle Catholic, um, but was forced to conform to the Church of England very young. And um, doing so had a lot of... Um, Benefits. He was allowed to go up to uh, Trinity College, Oxford, and ascended very quickly uh, in public office um, to um, become eventually the first Secretary of State to King James I. Um, but um, basically at the pinnacle of his political career, he decides to revert to his childhood faith um, at the risk of his, um, his fame and fortune. And um, what's, what's incredible about George Calvert is the way in which he managed to negotiate not just a title of nobility, 
um, but a grant um, to colonize uh, the New World, first in Newfoundland, modern-day Newfoundland, what he called Avalon, and then, of course, more famously, Maryland. Uh, he died, though, before uh, that final uh, seal was set on that charter by the king, and so that was bequeathed to his son Cecil. And so Cecil really is the, the founder of the laws of Maryland. And what's impressive about these two figures is that they tried to construct a, uh, a religiously tolerant colony. I mean, something that um, uh, we've heard of Rhode Island and Pennsylvania, um, but this is a, these are Catholic rulers who um, welcome both Catholics and Protestants to this colony. An incredibly advanced, if I could use that term, um, development in, uh, in certainly English politics, but um, but Western um, uh, Western history more generally, um, and so it's a radical experiment. And from that kind of creative legal energy, we get some really interesting ways of Catholics negotiating their identity as as Catholic and English. And then the second family is the Calverts, and uh, sorry, the Carols, and the Carols are um, very aware of the Calvert legacy. And uh, they um, come to Maryland in 1688, which is an inauspicious time uh, for Catholics in England. That's the revolution of 1688 when James II is forced uh, to, to abdicate his throne and um, uh, exiles to, to France. Um, and um, in, in their stead is a Protestant um, ascendant uh, monarchy. Um, so Charles Carroll the Settler comes to Maryland, and then later generations, eventually, Charles Carroll of Carrollton um, were the ones to take up that legacy. And um, along with Daniel Carroll, his second cousin, um, uh, were the ones to finalize the First Amendment. So, I mean, quite an amazing 200 years uh, of history in which you have one um, Catholic who um, is effectively forced to resign his post uh, because he's Catholic. And another Catholic who, um, uh, you know, finalizes an amendment that uh, declares there should be no established church at the federal level. So it's a remarkable transformation. And the question is, how did they do that, right? What are the kind of arguments um, do they make? Um, What kind of people were they that presented themselves as sort of loyal rather than potentially dangerous as John Locke saw Catholics? Yeah, that's yeah. It is really fascinating. So, uh, without having too many spoilers, we can we can leave it there um, for the sake of time too. But um, you've already kind of touched on this. But what do you hope readers take out of this? So again, whether there's somebody in your position who is like in the field of history as a professional historian who researches this type of stuff, and I mean, I honestly don't know the breakdown of of you know book sales, but um, but also for people like me who just really love history but aren't. An acad- I'm not an academic, but I just have a, like a deep love of history. I, I hope that's not a surprise to anybody listening to the show, since I do a, a show on papal history. But, um, but on both sides of the spectrum, what do you think that? What do you hope that the the biggest takeaway uh, of this book is? Well, for the general reader, and I did have general readers in mind when I when I wrote it. Um, I want them to get the story right of this remarkable transformation. I want to see want them to see the drama of a Catholic trying to navigate very choppy waters, right, um, in English politics. And I want to see the ways in which uh, later American Catholics were able to present themselves as as um, not just someone to be tolerated, right, um, but to uh, someone who would be um, have the kind of responsibility associated with religious liberty, that they, that they would be loyal and that they could actually build right a, a country with them to to help found a new nation um not just fit into it but found it so how did in other words catholics go from being lawbreakers to lawmakers right and that's the story that i tell in the book um just to give you a sense of of the drama here right uh, we, we all know how difficult it was for people to sail from gravesend london right um uh, through the River Thames, you know, along the southern coast of England, um, uh, past the Isle of Wight, and then go down and then up again across the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, incredible journey. People people died on that journey. Um, people got severely sick. Um, and then you had to sort of start 
you know, more or less anew in your life. Um, that, that alone is difficult. But now think, as a Catholic, you have to sign this oath of allegiance before you even board the ship. Now, this oath of allegiance basically um, uh, was a document that the king wanted Catholics to sign after the Guy Fawkes uh, assassination attempt of the king in parliament. And so Guy Fawkes was this, this Catholic uh, conspirator uh, and would-be assassin. And um, in, in light of that um, assassination attempt, um, the king said everyone, um, specific Catholics, um, uh, when asked, should sign this oath. And it basically said that, the, that it's a damnable doctrine, right, to believe in the kind of uh, powers that we just explained, right, the kind of uh, deposing and uh, um, excommunicated kings, um, murdering uh, um, excommunicated kings or, or queens, um, and so on and so forth, if the Pope said so. And um, it basically made Catholics sort of always potentially dangerous uh, in the eyes of the state. And the Pope at the time said, if you sign this oath, you'll be excommunicated. And so, you know, the, the, the drama here is Catholics are either potential traitors or potentially excommunicated. So this became a kind of litmus test for identity and, and loyalty. Now imagine, right, trying to get on board this ship, right? And the ship searcher is, is, is financially incentivized to find you because he gets sixpence, right, for every head that he, you know, uh, finds to tender this oath. And um, you, you have a crisis of, of commitments here, right? And so what I found is that some people um, uh, get off the ship. Uh, they don't, they don't uh, swear this oath. And then they they've somehow managed to go to the Isle of Wight and board the ship there. And so they basically subvert it. And because the law is every person who goes to the New World has to sign this oath. So what Cecil Calvert eventually does is it says, right, I'm going to make my own oath. And that's the surprising thing in the archives that I that I uncovered. Um, he uh, um, looks at this oath of allegiance says, right, um, the Pope says, if you sign it, you're, you'll be excommunicated. Um, I actually f found in my, in, in my research that Cecil Calvert did not think it was bad to sign, actually. Um, he doesn't think the Pope has this kind of authority, um, as, the, as the king says. Um, but he also knows that people have scruples of conscience about it, right? And, and understandably so. And so he wants to find a, a way sort of to resolve this. And the, effectively what he does, he's trained as a lawyer, is to excise the problematic clauses. And so it, 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 it's just rendered a kind of simple fealty oath, right? I swear to be allegiant to the king and his successors and so on. You just don't mention the pope at all. And that actually practically works. So um, that just gives you a kind of sense or flavor of, of the kind of narrative here. Um, it's... Uh, it's it, it, it provides a kind of complexity to an otherwise pretty just-so story that we tell ourselves, right, about the founding of America, the founding of religious liberty, and so on. Um, and so if, if readers want to get really um, a, a new, fresh perspective with new archival research, I think this would be a good book to, to pick up. Yeah, I agree. I mean, how easy is it to just get kind of Pollyannish about all that stuff, but you think about oh, I'm stressed out about flying from Seattle to New York, New York City and spending four hours on an airplane right. where it's air-conditioned and I get free snacks and uh, I'm comfortable. I get to watch a movie in the back of my seat. Or whatever side of the aisle you, you fall on, oh, I'm being you know, pressured to take a vaccine for COVID or something. I mean, like when you think of it in terms of that, that's what, that's what I love about, I mean, this history, I mean, papal history is, is one of the reasons I love it is because man, we are just so pampered, even in the problems that we have today. I mean, and, you know, we're not born in 1600, so we're not, I guess the Lord didn't mean for us to handle those challenges. But at the same time, when you put that in perspective, it's, yeah, it's really something. We can count our blessings that we're not having to, yeah, spend three months or whatever on a ship where people are dying all around us and we might catch scurvy or something. Sorry, I don't know if that's historically accurate, but, but I mean, yeah, the, the idea that, uh, yeah, we just live a very pampered lifestyle when you actually dive into the details. Yeah, George Calvert, um, uh, in his first uh, colonization attempt in Canada, 
um, write, writes back um, uh, and says that he's seen the sad face of winter, right? And um, half of his fellow um, uh, men die. And uh, he basically just packs up his bags and, and moves south um, and tries to uh, talk with the Virginians who don't want to talk to him because he's Catholic. And so he has to go back to England and get this new charter. And so these, these people knew um, suffering. Um, uh, you know, George Calvert's wife dies uh, with um, leaving 10 children. You know? Yeah, that was um, heartbreaking when I read that. And he writes a beautiful letter um, uh, describing uh, his, his kind of spiritual, um, uh, his, his spiritual reflections on that, right? Um, and so the, the, I'm trained as an intellectual historian, which means I'm interested in ideas, um, but I'm also interested in people, right? And and the kind of um, the kind of moral and religious complexity that that people have, uh, and the the very interesting stories or lives that they lead um, for for fascinating story. Yeah, yeah, it's very fascinating. So changing gears a little bit, then back to the the temporal power issue. So I've always been intrigued. The more that I learn about this, about like the sun setting of the papacy as a temporal power. So George Weigel was one of the ones who reviewed your book. Um, did you ever read his one? Was it, it's behind me on the shelf, The Irony, the Irony of Modern of, Catholic History? Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, it was an excellent book just to kind of paint a picture of like, yeah, the last 250 years and then uh, like how each pope kind of handled it differently. But uh, but it seems like the temporal power of, of the papacy really only ever arose like out of necessity, right? So Rome fell, the popes literally just were the only guy left I think it was something like uh, something absurd, like a million people at its height Rome had, and it was down to 30,000 after all the barbarian invasions and all the sacking of Rome and all this stuff. And the Pope was just left there, pick, literally picking up the pieces of Rome and feeding the poor and all that type of thing. And, that, and it seems like the temporal power just kind of was an outgrowth out of that and then Christendom, all that type of thing. Um, but it was never really something that was intended to have been baked into the cake, I guess you could say. So... Am I correct in that assumption? One, and then how did the American founding kind of help spur along that separation of the papacy, spiritual and temporal power? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Jesus did not uh, 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 bequeath any land to Peter, <laughs> as far as I know, and so um, the the historically contingent fact of popes under the auspices of the the papal states. Um, acquiring territory was, as it were, and I mean this in a philosophical sense, an historical accident, right? Um, it's not essential uh, to the papacy that it holds um, land, right, in its dominion. It has to have some land, of course, um, uh, but um, the the idea, um, the longstanding idea of um, papal authority in temporalibus, right, this kind of I- notion that the Pope's plenitude of spiritual authority um, does not stop uh, at the four walls of a church, right? It's because, um, if I could use another f- philosophical phrase, because this is a hylomorphic uh, conception, uh, a body and soul conception uh, of unified sense of, of a person, um, there's th- it would be a kind of nonsense to think that um, uh, under this view, it would be nonsense to think that the Pope uh, only has, you know, uh, authority over um, um, the, this, this, the spiritual in such a way that has no um, bearing on the body, right, or civil affairs of any kind. Um, and so, the I think you can you can separate the Pope owning land and having dominion from this uh, um, idea that the Pope has authority in temporal affairs, right, um, even if it's other countries. So by the, by the 19th century, we get the great um, diminution of, of papal land, um, and um, it, it effectively becomes uh, uh, focused on this kind of spiritual authority. So there's a kind of interesting way in which, uh, as, as the papal states shrink, um, there's a, there's a as it were, there's a greater focus um, on this this older view, right, of spiritual th- authority having bearing on 
uh, the temporal affairs um, of anywhere there's Catholics. Yeah, I mean, it's I I think it's it's so funny to think that it's still a relatively recent development too. I mean, it's oh, it was 150 years ago or 100 I guess almost 200 years ago now, right? Um, when the papal states officially were no more. Am I getting that right? It's like the 1820s. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, mid, early to mid um, uh, 19th century, mm-hmm. and um, th- there's there's this, you know, um, it, again, it's interesting to see that intended with the First Vatican Council, right, um, coming to terms with sort of this this modern arrangement, right, um, and, uh, and and again, there's there's been a lot of give and take between political authority. And, and the Pope over, especially in the Middle Ages, and so much of that, again, is um, the, the contingencies of, of what European politics look like. Um, but, um, but effectively, what we have in the, the, the 19th century beyond is um, a sense in which the Pope has to, like Leo XIII, for instance, um, uh, double down on his uh, spiritual authority with all these encyclicals and so on to sort of really present himself and his office rather um, as having the kind of the proper kind of spiritual authority rather than getting into, um, you know, uh, the kind of temporal affairs that any other political ruler would have. Having said all that, um, the Pope still is a political ruler. Um, And evidence of that, of course, is that, um, you know, the Vatican City state is a state um, it has a seat at the UN, and when uh, Pope Francis came most recently to the United States, um, even though the Obama administration wanted to assure everyone that the, the Pope is a pastor, not a politician, everyone knew that um, this is also state visit. And so um, there always is this tension, I think, f- especially for non-Catholics who, who perhaps are not used to this um, kind of arrangement, but even among Catholics, especially American Catholics, they don't really want to acknowledge the Pope as, as having temporal authority, even though it's very much circumscribed now. Um, but um, be, be right, I mean, it's a relatively recent development. We could probably spend a whole podcast on, on just that. But I, I, yeah, I distinctly remember it was very odd the way that they introduced the Pope, like Pope Francis when he spoke in front of, in, I guess, the two houses of Congress, that right? That joint session, uh, yeah. Yeah, and they, what did they say? The Pope of the Holy See or something. It was like, that's just, nobody nobody calls it the Pope of the Holy See, but probably just because he's a yeah, state sovereign or something. But yeah, anyways, so um, yeah, thanks for the answer. I, yeah, I, I always, again, I'm, I'm super fascinated by that. And it takes nothing away from all of the great things that Popes did as temporal authorities, but it just seems like they just have so much more freedom now to actually be what what Peter was meant to be when Jesus said, like when, when Jesus made him the rock and made him the head of the church, like he, you're right. He didn't give him attractive land on purpose. Um, even though it was a, uh, just a, a necessity at the time. But so during your research, then what were some of the things you already mentioned one thing, like, uh, about a couple of things about, um, the Calverts, but what were, what were some of the other things that you discovered that were most surprising or at the very least, were there things that you had maybe previously believed or thought, um, or been taught as an American or as a Catholic or both that were kind of upended, as a result of writing the book? Yeah, a few things come to mind. One is uh, the, the basic thesis. I mean, my from my background, um, I had been sort of, uh, I had read Orestes Brownson, the 19th century convert to Catholicism, a man of letters who um, wrote very vigorously in defense of Catholicism to a largely Protestant audience. And he said, um, echoing many others, um, that uh, although there were no Catholics at the founding, he said, which is historically not true, um, they, um, the founders had a kind of um, intuitive sense, right, uh, about how, um, about the moral law and so on. Um, it's effectively the argument that they built wiser than they knew, to quote the Third Council, Leonard Council of Baltimore, um, picked up by John Courtney Murray, the Jesuit uh, theologian of the 20th century, advisor to John F. Kennedy, and so on. Um, and so this, this sense in which, although they weren't Catholic, they built a, a nation that um, was, was, you might say, intellectually and, and morally compatible with it, 
Um, and so uh, it was just a matter of time in which, and, and some immigration in which it became more and more Catholic. Um, and certainly um, something that would uh, prove very fertile for, for the growth of the Catholic Church and something that the popes had acknowledged as well. So that was the kind of standard story that I had been taught. And whatever one thinks about that standard story, I think one has to confront this other um, revelation, which is that, um, at, at least at some level, um, they weren't compatible, at least with um, understandings about papal infallibility today. And um, you know, the, the question of uh, papal authority in temporal affairs is, is, is much trickier because it hasn't, to my mind, been defined in the way, in the precision that um, we find in the First Vatican Council on papal infallibility. Um, but certainly the way popes have practiced ever since the Middle Ages, at least, up until uh, John Paul II and his um, fight against communism, which um, can't but be uh, a kind of political intervention is, um, without saying anything against it being a spiritual intervention par excellence. Um, or, uh, for instance, Pope Francis has already mentioned, right, addressing a joint session of Congress in which he talks about what we would call political issues, um, which can't help but be moral too. And so um, that's the kind of uh, um, surprise that I had that, that these Catholics were um, very, very at ease in denying uh, this kind of papal authority. Um, when I had known everything about the so-called ultramontane 19th century and the kind of um, uh, you know, complacent compatibility that perhaps we saw um, with the fall of communism. So uh, that was surprising to me. Um, the second surprising thing is, is a bit more fine-grained. Um, one of the interesting things that, um, that I found was, was uh, about the First Amendment. So um, obviously the First Amendment, the religion clauses, something I've um, written about, um, has a, a great importance for uh, American jurisprudence, uh, law, politics, religion. And um, there's a certain interpretation in, in, um, in our country called originalism, right? That we should look at the Constitution as, um, as it was originally intended or written or understood, however you want to frame it. Wasn't, uh, Justice Scalia was famously an originalist, wasn't he? He was in a qualified sense, yeah. Um, he, I think it's probably better to say he was sort of a textualist, um, and uh, so the, the, the broad family of sort of concepts within this, with this uh, in this umbrella. Um, but a lot of originalists use history, right? Um, uh, history doesn't need originalism, but originalism needs history. And so um, when, when I look at originalist interpretations of the First Amendment or any, anything like that, they often go to sort of the drafting history, dictionaries, um, letters, correspondences, whatever people were talking about at the time to find the meanings of words and phrases. Um, but if you look at the generating history of the First Amendment, you get a pretty um, unsatisfying document in some ways because um, it's, it's, uh, um, it's, it's, they didn't have um, uh, you know, the kind of um, recordings and so on that we have today. And so we, we have a stenographer who was there, um, and his name was Thomas Lloyd. And everyone kind of knows that this is written by at least someone, and they and this person had uh, created some, sp wrote down some speeches. Daniel Carroll, this Catholic, wrote, uh, a gave a speech on the House floor. It's amazing that he wasn't even allowed in the House of Representatives. Yeah, seriously. Um, so really sh showing that tra transformation. But he he stands up uh, to Mr. Madison's amendment, right? The first what became the First Amendment, and he says in in very soaring oratory. Um, uh, talking about the rights of conscience and how it will satisfy the the minds of um, of many who are against the current constitution, right? The anti-federalists, um, uh, and he can't think of you know anything that would be better for for you know uh, for the constitution at this at this point, and um, it's basically a ringing endorsement of Madison's amendment and religious liberty. What, if you look at Daniel Carroll's speech as recorded, uh, compared with the other ones, uh, it's clear the stenographer is highlighting Daniel Carroll. If you just compare them. Wow. And what I found is Thomas Lloyd, the stenographer, 
was Catholic. How and about that? He was actually taught by Daniel Carroll's brother, John Carroll, the first Bishop of Baltimore, when Man. Thomas Lloyd was a student in, uh, in Europe. Um, he was English. And, um, and English Catholics weren't allowed to go to school, uh, Catholic school in England. Right. So they went to mostly France or modern-day Belgium. And so what's incredible is that Daniel Carroll, Charles Carroll, and Thomas Lloyd, uh, three Catholics in the House of Representatives, Thomas Lloyd being the stenographer, um, they all probably went to Mass, um, you know, uh, that, that day um, or that weekend. Um, and uh, in New York, they would have known each other. Um, and in fact, it was the day of the Feast of the, uh, of the Assumption, August 15th. So um, if they were good Catholics, they would have gone to their Holy Day of Obligation. Um, and uh, so my contention is that Thomas Lloyd um, definitely punched up Daniel Carroll's remarks, knowing, <laughs> knowing the, mm -hmm. the, the kind of momentous occasion that that was, that a Catholic was allowed in and could speak on behalf of religious liberty. Man. Oh, I don't, like I don't even know what to say to that. That's that. It really is. That's an incredible story because it's, it's that he's the guy. He's the reason that we know what happened when the first amendment was written, and he happens to have been a Catholic. And a Catholic wrote the first history of the first amendment. Right. That's fascinating. Well, and I couldn't help but think. I know Bishop Barron always talks about, um, always quotes John Henry Newman on conscience, which it would have been what a hundred years before Newman wrote it, but he called the conscience what the Aboriginal vicar of Christ in the soul. That, like everything that is happening now is all about the first amendment and it all has its origins. Like the fact that we can have, again, stand on the shoulders of giants um, and half the country's whining about it, but like they don't realize that they have the privilege of that because of something that was like undergirded by 18 centuries of like theological fleshing out to get us to a point where like, sure. The American founding was not Catholic in, in a lot of ways. And there's, you know, there was a lot of turmoil. Like the half, I mean, the book is about, um, exactly that, but to have something that was so fundamental to it, at least to be like, to have a, like Catholic thought sort of protecting that without m requiring everybody to, to believe all of those things is, yeah, it's just something else. It's incredible transformation. And, you know, this legacy of Carol Catholicism, if you will, um, continued to be debated in the 19th century. So um, we have bishops like Bishop England um, going to Congress and saying, reminding congressmen of this legacy explicitly and saying Catholics can be very good Republicans. There's no need to worry about Catholics. In other words, they, they recapitulate this, this, the same arguments in the 19th century and likewise in the 20th century with John F. Kennedy, right, in his 1960 famous uh, address to the Greater uh, Houston Ministerial Association in which he says, uh, you know, look, I don't speak for the church and the church does not speak for me. Um, and, you know, Protestants want to know, well, how does that work? Because, because um, don't you take your cues from the Pope or mm -hmm. his bishops um, and so on. And, um, and so this, the, the tension continues and you even have um, popes writing explicitly about the American founding. Uh, the fact that John Carroll, the first bishop, was friends with George Washington, the fact that you had um, Catholics at the founding um, who supported the First Amendment. And popes like Leo XIII, you know, the, he recognizes this, but he said, let's not infer from that, from that fact, but also the fact that Catholicism continues to flourish. Um, let's not infer that that's the best arrangement, right, um, uh, as a kind of metaphysical or even proposition. Um, but at the same time, he's quite laudatory, actually, about the ways in which um, American Catholicism has, has grown. Um, and although there had been controversies with so-called Americanism and so on, uh, there's incredible, um, you might call it, legacy of a, a non-establishment context in which Catholicism can still uh, operate with what, might call, what we might call liberty of the church, libertas ecclesiae. Yeah, when I was reading about that and just thinking about like the tough spot that Leo XIII had to have been in, because he's what the first pope to have not reigned over the papal states after they were in existence. Yeah, yeah. I think you know it was seven eight hundred years of the papal states being a thing in some form or another. Um, and then I, I thought of uh, it was Winston Churchill, right? You said democracy is the worst form of government except for everything else. 
it's almost like the church has to exist in this weird limbo state because there's the temptation to say, oh, America is doing it differently than it's ever been done before and the church is flourishing. But we're still not like the the world, the church is that or the world's thy ship and not thy home. Yeah. They quote St. Therese. It's like the temptation to we have to remember that nothing's going to be perfect. Yeah, you had, you asked me before, sort of, did the American um, uh, founding hasten in some ways? Um, thinking about uh, the, the dissolution of the papal states and thinking about you know reconceptualizing what the role of the pope is, um, I, I think certainly there's there's a great worry in Rome about revolutions, mostly the French Revolution, but. But also the American Revolution, insofar as um, the the Pope was uh, much more cozy with uh, King George III, um, who he said should be respected as you know the quote best of sovereigns. Um, and meanwhile, you know Charles Carroll is signing the Declaration of Independence, you know, um, and he was the Pope was willing to, um, uh, uh, as it were, um, tell Catholics to pledge allegiance to King George and the Hanoverian. Um, uh, monarchy rather than the the Jacobite line, which had been the, the you know the standard Catholic allegiance, and so there's the, there's a great pragmatism I think uh, in the Holy See. That's what really surprised me as well in uh, these uh, documents at the Vatican that I looked at, um, and uh, you know Carroll's correspondence uh, with Rome, John Carroll's correspondence with Rome, or the way in which um, uh, you know Cecil and uh, Calvert's um, machinations about the oath of allegiance get to Rome. What's incredible about these cardinals and ecclesiastics is the way in which they're really trying, I think they're level best in protecting, right, what kind of gains the church has in what they called heretical countries um, uh, and uh, trying to find ways to accommodate. They really do. Um, And you see this you know, wax and wane in the 19th century, some are a bit more hard line. But in the 18th century, they're really trying hard to figure out what the United States, or what they called the United Provinces of America, um, are really about. And so one of the, the, the nice vignettes, just to, to illustrate this a little bit um, more clearly, is, is that um, after the Treaty of Paris that solidified America's independence from Britain um, was, uh, was, was going on, actually, negotiated. Benjamin Franklin was in Paris and the papal nuncio was there as well and the papal nuncio um, wanted to um, you know, basically uh, figure out a way to have uh, an ecclesiastical superior so maybe not quite an ordinary bishop, right, because this is so-called heretical territory so you can't actually have an right. ordinary diocese um, and so how do we get a basically uh, someone with faculties of a bishop so we can grow, right for holy orders and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, the papal nuncio says, you know, we'd like this person. Um, can you please have Congress approve that person? And Benjamin Franklin says, you have no idea, you, you don't understand. Like the, the Congress <laughs> has no authority to mm-hmm. accept or reject um, whatever kind of ecclesiastical superior or whatever you call it um, in an ordinary church. And the papal nuncio says, no, 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 please send it to Congress. And so Franklin dutifully does so, and Congress replies in 1783. Um, uh, this is, I think, the first statement, public statement by by American Congress on church state. It says, "We do not have authority in purely ecclesiastical matters." Yeah, and oh. so it anticipates the First Amendment by, um, you know, more than a, uh, you know, several several years, mm-hmm. um, and that I think shocks. Right, Rome. I think that's they don't know how to understand that because the history of lay investiture and um, and so on, uh, you know, conditioned them to think that temporal authorities would have some say, at least a kind of negative voice or veto, right, um, or some kind of tacit diplomatic understanding. Um, so that changes quite radically. Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, I really appreciate this. I, I, we're going a little bit long, so I want to make sure to be to be mindful of time here. Um, so we always like to save a question for our patrons. So if you're not a patron and you're listening to this, please go to patreon.com slash the podcast and you'll be able to find out the super secret question I'm about to ask Michael. 
one last question then for today. Of course, make sure to link to your book in the show notes here. Uh, again, Our Dear Bought Liberty is the name of it, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America. Um, but where can people find you, your other works, anything you'd like to share as a uh, not-so-shameless plug? Sure. Sign off. So I have a website. Um, it's michaelbreidenbach.com. And um, you can just Google my name in the best way you think that the German <laughs> is, is spelled. Uh, and uh, if you associate um, that search with Ave Maria University, you'll uh, definitely get that. Um, that's my academic home. And, um, and so you can look at, um, uh, you know, the, um, the, the notes for uh, Our Dear Bot Liberty. I have a, a, a short trailer um, that um, might pique someone's interest as well for the book, um, as well as uh, reviews. Um, and then also my other, um, my other uh, writings are on that website as well. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you again, Michael, for uh, being a guest on the show. Love to have you have you back on again to to nerd out on on all things uh, papal history or or American political history for that matter. I don't know, um, but this is yeah, this is a great discussion. I hope everybody listening enjoyed it as well. Um, but yeah, thanks again. We'll, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you again. Well, that is a wrap on this episode of the podcast. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, as I'm, I'm sure I, and I hope many of you did, uh, please be sure to share this. So if, whether it's sending it to a friend, uh, just texting the link to a friend, sharing it on social media. Um, leaving a review on iTunes, uh, of course, uh, helps more people to find the show. But more importantly, uh, share the link to the book. If, if you plan to, to go and purchase this book for yourself, um, it, it would make a great Christmas gift. I mean, if you, if you know another history enthusiast in your life, uh, American history enthusiast in your life, uh, please consider buying a copy for them or, or passing it along. Michael was excellent to talk to you, to work with. Um, it really was, from my understanding, a labor of love that he'd been working on for many, many years uh, and really is pretty much universally acclaimed as um, an impeccably researched work of historical scholarship, but it, it's really, really uh, easily digestible for uh, the amateur historian like yours truly. So uh, so again, please be sure to share this if you enjoyed it. We'd love your feedback um, too on, on what you found interesting. If, if there were surprises that you didn't know about, I know that there were certainly, you could probably tell as we were recording it, that there were some things that I didn't even realize um, before talking to Michael. So uh, so again, please be sure to share that if you liked it. Uh, also, thank you to all of our patrons. Without you guys, we'd be able to do none of this. We hope you enjoy the bonus content. Um, again, if you're not a patron and would like to to make sure to get that extra question um, that we ask all of our guests, so not just this episode, but all of the episodes that we've done in the past with uh, folks like The Pillar, Dr. Chad Pecknold, um, Trent Horn, all of the guests that we've had on the show, we've asked this question to. So if you'd like to, to take advantage of that, please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the podcast. And as we head out today, let us give thanks for all of those involved in America's founding, whether known to history or not, uh, for risking life and limb to help settle a new world and to ultimately give us the life that we enjoy today. And as always, let us remember that although these are strange times we live in, they are no stranger than in ages past. Until next time. <laughs>